This is a teaching message from Church of the Living Water of Austin. We will go ahead and uh, open up back to Psalms 91. And if you, if you weren't here with us last week, go ahead and write down Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And Psalm 31, verses 14 through 15. And those are the scriptures that we started off, uh, started off with last week. And I'll do a quick review here. Um, we started off in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And the reason we went to that scripture is because I wanted to make sure that we all knew that to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. You know, God said that himself. So all those things that he mentioned in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, those things are going to happen. There is a season for those things. God says there's a time and a season for all of it. But there's, there's always a distraction that seems to get our time, get us off focus that God says these things are going to happen. And he makes things beautiful in his time, in his season. So if he, does, if he knows these things are going to happen and he's the most high God, then we should abide in him. He's the only one that can get us through. Because when you read some of those things in Ecclesiastes, you're like, man. You know, how can I do a time to kill, a time to die? You know, how can I deal with these things? And God said, there's a time and a season for all these things. And I make it, he makes it beautiful in its time. So all we have to do is trust, put our lives in his hand. Like it said in Psalm 31, so I trusted thee, O Lord. I said, thou art my God. My times are in thy hands. And again, like I said, he has an expected end for his children. That's one thing you have to keep on your mind. If you're a child of God, he hasn't expected in for you. So, you know, there may be circumstances and things that come up, come up along the way, but don't allow any of them to get you off that path that he has you on. Don't allow anything to get you off this way, off to the side when he has you on. He hasn't expected in for you, but you've got to trust in him. In the good times, in the bad times, we have to remember God is in control of all seasons, of all times, and of my times. My life is in his hands. So again, that means that I have to consult him on every decision I make. If my life is in God's hands, if I'm putting my life in his hands, any decision that I make on any circumstance, on anything, I need to consult with him. Because he, he controls all time, all seasons. It's in his hands. He makes everything beautiful in his time and his season. So I have to trust my life to his hands. And when I don't do that thing, that's when I'm liable to mess up. That's when I'm liable to to get distracted and make a mistake. When I don't keep my eye single, when I don't keep my eye focused, I'm liable to get distracted and make a mistake. If I'm not renewing my, my mind daily, I can get lulled to sleep. Lulled to sleep and the next thing you know, I'm back to the old way of doing things. When I say the old way, I mean the old ways of the flesh. Because I haven't been renewing my mind. I haven't been trusting my life to his hands. And again, that's the snare of the enemy. That's the trick of the enemy. Like, like I said before, Satan, Satan is, his desire is to, to, to get us and sift us like wheat. Separate the wheat from the chaff. And he wants us to remain chaff. And the chaff, what we say, with the, that, that's the grains and the stuff that, that are burnt or, or dried out or useless. He wants to leave us useless in the kingdom of God. He wants to render us stagnant. He wants to destroy us. He wants to devour us. So let's all go over to Psalm 91. I I told you guys to turn there, but I hadn't got there yet. Psalm 91. And I'm going to start at verse 1 again. It says, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. 
I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God in Him will I trust. Surely He shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. And that's where I want to stop again because I told you, like, like I told you last time, our, our focus verse is going to be that verse 3. Surely He shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. And we've been focusing on the snare of the fowler because the snare of the fowler, that is the crafty, the crafty, sneaky, cunning way that the enemy has gotten, has gotten believers, sinners and believers alike, caught up. And listen, he can't use any other way. That's all he can do. That is, that's that's the reach of his power to present and persuade you against the truth. So we have to be fully equipped on how to deal with the snare of the fallow so that we're not pulled away or pulled astray from the truth. So I said we had two objectives that we wanted to identify that we were going we to handle in this teaching. And the first one is to identify what the snare of the fowler is. And we touched on that uh, extensively last teaching. Identifying what it is, and we got to a certain point, and we'll get there uh, again today, but we identified what the snare of the fowler is, how it operates, what's its mode of operation. And then we said the, the, the next objective is, how do I avoid the snare of the fowler? And we will get on that today and hopefully finish up on that as well. So last, last week we talked about, because I, I wanted to take this step by step to make sure we get a clear picture. Because God says that, that surely he will deliver us from the snare of the fowler for a reason. He told us that it's like the, sna- the snares of the enemy are like the snare of the fowler for a reason. So we broke down what a snare is. And we said a snare is a trap or device used to surprise, entangle, confuse, capture, devour, and destroy the ensnared. We said a snare can look small, it can look big, it can look insignificant, it can even look non-existent. But the end result of one uh, of a snare being set up is the big fall. For you being overtaken, you being devoured, you being sifted is the end result. I also want to encourage you to remember that our adversary, as a roaring lion, he walks about seeking whom he may devour. That is his job. That is, listen, if you, if you, if you ever find yourself, I wonder what the enemy's doing now. He's, he's walking about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He's always on his plan. He's always about his business, which means you need to always be abiding. So again, in our in our case, uh, you know, looking at it spiritually, because we I know last time we were we, we talked about the snare of the fowl and we got into that uh, uh, deeply, but in our case, it's set before us to to distract us from God's plan. And again, God's plan is truth, and the enemy's plan is deception. He's the father of lies. That's what he he is trying to lie to you to get you off the truth. He will lie to you with what he's what what he can make you perceive as the truth. Using God's word. And again, we said that a snare, it's the opposite of freedom. So what the, what the enemy is attempting to do is enslave you. Because remember, as a believer, sin has no dominion over us. We're no longer slaves to sin. But the enemy wants to bring you back into within his power. That's his, he, wants to, he wants to ruin your relationship with your father. If he can get, up, get us off our focus, he's done his job. If he can get you off your position in Christ, you'll do anything. We also said that snares are deliberate. They're designed. They're planned. They're premeditated. 
They're implemented with intent. They're made and set to accomplish the fowler's purpose. And again, that purpose is always entrapment, destruction, and control. So, we went also and we wanted to discover what a fowler is. And we looked at it naturally. And we said a fowler is a skilled, patient, and experienced hunter who studies his victims intensely and accurately before he launches an attack. He knows what they eat, what they drink, what time they wake up, where they go to get their food. Now, I'm talking, I'm talking, I'm talking naturally now. I'm talking about a, an actual uh, fowler. You know, what they do. He knows what they drink. He knows what they like. He knows that they have offspring. He knows everything that they need to know about that particular bird. Because it's not just one bird. There's plenty of different species. If it's a different bird, he, need, he knows what he needs to know about that bird. He, know, he knows what he needs to know about this one. The fowler is a skilled and a patient. He'll wait until he learns it. A patient hunter. Making sure he knows what your thought process is on this. What is this, what is this bird thinking? So that I can react. So that I can set up. So that I can ensnare. And we also said that, you know, that almost 100% of the time, the fowler and his, and his snares are undetectable to its victims. And the victim has no reason to suspect it. So then we, we wanted to, to discuss what the snare of the fowler is. And we're, we're going to talk about it naturally. We talked about it naturally and put it in the spir- uh, spiritually as well. But we said the snare of the fowler, first and foremost, is rooted in secrecy. They never, let the, they never set the, the snare right in front of the bird. It's never going to be obvious is what I'm trying to tell you. The enemy is sneaky. The enemy is crafty. He's not, he's not trying to do it in front of your face so you can see it and be like, oh, I, I can see that coming. That's not how the enemy works. He, he sets it in secret, and then he covers it up. After, even, though, even though it's already set in secret, then after that, he'll hide it as well. We're talking naturally now. He'll hide it, or dress it up, or put, put colorful, colorful things on it to, to entice it, or food, to make it bring it in, to anything to, to make it think it's something that it's not. And again, that's the, that's the subtlety of Satan the Fowler. He isn't, the, he isn't someone that gives you black or white. He gives you something else that, 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 that pulls you, that, that gray area that makes you think, well, is that, that's, that can't be something that's wrong for me. He entices you with things that entice you, with your lusts, your temptations. He wants you to... He, he says things to get you to reason things and, and weigh things against the truth. And like, yeah, but would God do that? When it, even if, he, if God gave you a word clearly, he'll say something to get you to question it. And then once his conditions, once you, once you begin to reason off of it, he's, listen, the, the conditions are set. That's when he, that's when he, that's, that's when he, he prounces, snares his prey. We also said that the, fair, the, the snare of the fowler is highly adaptable. I was saying it before. It, it, it doesn't matter what walk of life you come from. You know, like I said, you could be a career criminal. You could be a professing Christian that grew up in the church. It doesn't matter what, what walk of life you come from. It doesn't matter what, what your flavor of, of temptation or lust is. He has something for you. Oh, yeah, he has something for the, the, the Bible-toting, faith-talking and walking church believer, too. That's why you have to, that's why it's so crucial to, re, to remain humble. 
Don't ever think that you've gotten God's word and now, now, now you don't have to you don't have to abide in it. You don't have to meditate on it. You don't have to muse over it again and again. Because that's when he'll come in and he'll tempt you with something that he, and then you just can't pass it up. So he also said that the snare of the fowler employs decoys. Just like, just, and naturally we were talking about like a duck decoy. The, the enemy employs decoys as well and he's not going to use, he's going to use something that looks like you. That's what a decoy is. He's not gonna, he's not gonna come up to you with somebody, for example, and this is just an example, he's not gonna get somebody, he's not gonna bring a prostitute out in the middle of the street to look strung out to come and, 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 and get you to do something. Against his will. That's not how it's gonna be. Let's keep it real. He's gonna get someone that you might call brother. That you might call sister. In the Lord or just in your family. He's gonna get someone that you've trusted and respected. See, because here's the thing, here's the truth that he wants you to get you off of. When you see somebody else that's trusted and respected and you believe that they've been walking and then they say, you're like, wait a minute, something's wrong. But, but you've already been off focus because now you put your faith in a man. Your eyes have been in a man and that's the snare. He'll let you walk along, oh, they really trust and respect this person. And then when you see them do this thing, that decoy, you may think it's okay then. They may go to all the services. Let's hang out with the family. Let's do this. Let's do that. But it's all a decoy. Uh, here's the thing, and I said it before, but I want to say this again. You can be a decoy in that relationship. If, it, if it's a relationship that you're trying to pursue, you can be a decoy. The person you're with can be a decoy if you're not abiding. The enemy will use whoever, whatever, whenever. And if you're not abiding, you're fair game. So how does Satan, and we talked about this last time as well, how does Satan, the fowler, set the snare? Because there is a clear pattern. So we turned over to James chapter 1, uh, verse 13 through 15. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it for you. I have it here in my notes. And it says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. See, that, that's what we've been saying for a while. Listen, God doesn't tempt you against his own word. The enemy comes, and he tries to pull your mind from what the truth is with something that entices you. So you're already inclined to be like, well, it entices me, and now I'm, I'm getting in that gray area where it may be okay for me to do. So I'm going to go ahead and go all out in it because I want to do it anyway. That's the, that's, the, that's the pattern of temptation. You're drawn away of your own lust and enticed. And that brings forth sin. So we also turn to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, and let's go ahead and go back there because I do want to touch on this again. Talking about how the fowler tempts us. And we gave the example of Eve. Genesis chapter 3. And I'll just read this through one time again. Verse 1 through 6, it says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? 
And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye, yes, lest ye die. I didn't say this last time, but God just gave this to me, you know. Just now as I read it. You know, the enemy right there came and said, Ye shall not eat of, of every tree of the garden? Now, right there at that moment, I want to know why Eve was entertaining anything he said. Because at that moment, she should have been like, hush your mouth. Because I know what the word, the word has been brought to me, and I know what the word of God says. But she, listen, she, instead, she tries to explain herself. Because cause that question that the enemy gave her, I already started raising doubts and questioning in her mind. So instead, she's, she, she answered and said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. It's just that one tree. You know, so he is our guy. He's a good guy. It's just that one tree that's in the midst of the garden. And the serpent said unto the woman, oh, I'm sorry, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. I, see, I don't understand, I don't understand right? Because you know it's you and Adam in the garden. Why, what, do you, what reason do you have explaining what God has told Adam to tell you to, to the serpent? You already, you already in the, he, the snare is there. What reason do you have to engage back and forth with him? But I'm telling you, it was that subtle question. It raised out. And the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. So he's already ready with what she said. He said we would die. Then he, well, this is what you need to hear, right? To move forward and saying, you shall not surely die. And this is what I don't understand. Someone she did not know, the enemy, who was able to get to her, got her to question God, who who she's been following all along. With one simple thing. Because she was intrigued. She was enticed. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall, shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. So uh, there it is, the pattern again. How, how, How was it? The woman saw the tree was good for food, the lust of the flesh. It was the delight to the eyes, the lust of the eyes. And that the, the tree was desirable to make one mind, uh, wise. That's the pride of life. So the, she saw those things, then she took from it. And she ate. And that pattern hasn't changed to this day. The enemy appeals to our fleshy nature, to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's the pattern of the snare. He did the same thing to Eve that he does to us. And then again, like we said last week, before you say, well, it's not that easy for me to get caught up, I wanted you to consider at that point, when he was reasoning with her, she hadn't sinned yet. And, and the really crafty part about it is, she had no sinful, no sinful fault that she had done, nothing that the enemy could accuse her of, but he still knew how to attack her. He found a way to, appease, to appeal to her mind and her reasoning, just by a question. And the statement, you shall, you shall not surely die. Planting doubt about the character of God in her mind when he's been faithful all along. 
showed her the gray area. Got her to start reasoning against the word of God. The word of God that she received through her husband. She knew it clearly. She was not supposed to eat. Adam knew it clearly. He was not supposed to eat of that tree. That's, the, that's why I said it last time. We have to know the word of God for ourselves. Pastor was saying this Sunday, you have to meditate on it. You have to spend time with it. You have to become one with the word of God. Whatever he brings you from his word, it's not for you to be like, okay, now nah, I know it. No, you have to become one with it until it becomes who you are. Because it's quick and easy for anybody to get caught up if you're not one with the word. I, I could tell that Eve hadn't been meditating on the commandment from the Lord. You, you know how? Because she got caught up. If she was meditating on it, on that from the Lord, when the enemy asked that question, it would have been shut down from the jump. If the word is in you like that, if you're meditating on it like that, guess what's going to come out? You have to hear the word of God. You have to become one with the word of God so that the enemy can't place any doubts in your mind. I'm not saying you have to know the scriptures inside and out, but you have to know who you are in Christ. You have to know what God said he has for you. Or any old thing, any old thing that the enemy says will get you the reason. Well, does God that? Will God do that? Does he have that for me? And when you start answering those, asking those questions, it's, listen, the next thing is sin is conceived. So we also went and took a look at another, another instance in the Bible, because we have to take a look at our Lord and how he, hit, how he handled temptations. So let's go ahead and turn back to Matthew chapter 4. And again, it's not going to be a different pattern because like I told you, the enemy, all he can do is present and persuade. So Matthew chapter 4. And yeah, let's go through these again because it, it was so good to me. So let's go through this again. Matthew chapter 4 verses 1. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. So... Jesus knows that, listen, God is about to get the glory. He was led up of the Spirit to be tempted of the devil. And here's the thing about abiding. When you, when you dwell in the secret place, that secret place where, where his presence is, it's where his glory is. So if that's where his glory is, then whatever you do in his presence, he gets all the glory. So Jesus knew it. I'm, 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 I'm on my way to be, to be tempted. And w when I'm on my way, when I get there, it's going to be the truth. That's all that's going to happen. So it says, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterward and hungered. And the tempter came to him. Right on, listen, right on cue. He was hungry. He was like, well, here we go. Well, let's start with the lust of the flesh. The enemy came to him. The tempter came to him. He said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Again, you know, check Peter's subtlety 
of the enemy, right? Christ is hungry. So it's only proper that you give a hungry man some food. So shouldn't it be okay for you to turn this? Aren't you hungry? Shouldn't it be okay for you to turn these stones into bread? And here's the funny thing about it. He said, if thou be the Son of God. You know, recently, and I believe in the chapter before, he was just declared the Son of God by God. This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And the enemy tried to tempt him right off of that, too. He wanted to, to tempt him to doubt him of that, to bring him, bring him to a place of doubt. If you, if you say that you're the Son of God, who's the heir of all things, how, how, could, how, how could God leave you to be so hungry? If thou be the, he said, see that if, that if thou be the son of God, because I don't believe it because he's trying to play, he's trying to plant doubt, then why would God leave you to be so hungry? The gray areas. Because let me tell you, hunger, especially in today's world, listen, we do all types of, it's a travesty. There's all types of things in today's world that we do to fight against hunger. So it seems like a wrong thing for any man to be going hungry. See, that's what I mean when I say the gray areas. Because, listen, Jesus knew I was, he was on his way up there to be tempted, led of the Spirit. But the gray areas are, but, but isn't, isn't, you know, being hungry and feeding a man that's hungry, isn't that a good thing to feed a man that's hungry? That's, he, he, he plays on all, your good Christian attitudes too, he'll play on all of that. Remember, his snare is set to devour you. It's to undermine our relationship to God. His relationship to us as Father. You know, I think of my Father. There's no, listen, I trust, I trust Him with that. I trusted Him with the, beyond, beyond reproach. Listen, if He asks me to do something, I obey Him. And that's what He wants you to get away from. That relationship to Father. He, wants you, he, don't, he doesn't want you to see yourself as a child of God. He wants you to cut off your trust in him. He wants you to start relying on yourself. He wants you to question your sonship. He wants you to question the truth. And again, he'll he'll deceive you with designs. He'll deceive you with imagination. You know, he'll make you think, God, that's a hard God. That's an unkind God. That's an unforgiving God. That he'll forsake you at a drop of a dime like that. That's what he was trying to do to Jesus. That's a, that's a, that's a hard father that'll come at you like that. As if, as if father is not, is not a position of chastisement and correction. Then ask him to prove that he's the son of God. Command these stones to be turned into bread. Painting the picture that God had forsaken him with just a few little subtle words. Turn these stones into bread. But God said, you should, you, I, I don't have to live by bread alone, but he wants you to go against the Father's will. Not, to, not the Father's will, but your will be done. That's what he wants. Because let me tell you, he knows that your will is destruction. That's the trap. 
You know, your temptations, your lusts, those things that entice you, your will, that's the trap. And again, we saw how Christ replied. He said, but it is written. It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. It is written. Placing importance on the word of God. My pastor was saying, it is written. You have to read it. You have to study to show thyself approved. When I say approved, to show yourself pleasing to God. And that's why God, listen, that's why he said it because this is God's son in whom he's well pleased. And that's the, me- the method we have to take anytime we're tempted. We need to respond with what's written in the word of God. The truth of the word. Listen, what's written in the, 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 the offensive weapon of, of the, 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 the armor of the Lord. You know, the, the sword. That means you need to use it. Then he took him and then he gave him another temptation. Verse 5. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple. And we talked about this last time. He took him to the holy city for a a reason. See, now he's playing on his pride of life. He set him on a pinnacle. We told you what a pinnacle was in these temples. Right? We got these plazas that hold thousands of people for worship. And on the corner, there's the pinnacle. Above where everybody sees. I told you last time, to this day, they, those are sightseeing things. If people go to visit like uh, th- these places, that's what they go to see. Let's go, to the, let's go into the temple and look at the pinnacle. And this is where, you know, it's so funny to me too as well because every time it says, and he took Jesus, and, and the devil taketh him up. You know what that means? That means, that means Jesus was led up by the Spirit to be tempted of the enemy. I'm with you. Come on, take, come on over here because I need to show you the truth of God's word. He, felt, he thought he was taking Jesus. Jesus was taking him. But he took him to this public place. Intended for him to show his power in front of all these people. Get himself some sort of fame. Or if he could, you know, end his purpose early. Out of season. And, and here's the temptation again. He said unto him, If thou be the Son of God. <laughs> there he is. Show it and prove it again. If thou, if thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. We said this last time. Notice he said, cast thyself down. Because the enemy can only present and persuade. He can't cast them down. Again, the, the power of Satan is limited. And it says, uh, verse 6 again, And said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou shalt dash thy foot against the stone. Quoting scripture to him. Trying to, trying to back his challenge. For it is written, he, he, that's not lost on me that he tried to say the same thing back. For it is written, but let me be honest with you, it's not written that way. The enemy misquoted it on purpose. 
But he can use scripture to snare you too if you, don't, if you haven't become one with God's word for yourself. Trying to get Christ to throw himself down, be, himself, be his own murderer and use scripture to do it. Trying to encourage Christ to, to come up from under submission and do opposite the will of God while continuing to rely on God's care while he's doing it. To sin that grace may abound. So again, how did Christ overcome this snare? In verse 7, Jesus said unto him, It is written again. <laughs> I'm glad he said that back to him. It is written again. Son, chill out. Because, listen, you misquoting the word and you think it's going to work on me. Chill. It is written again. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. I shall not use God's word as an occasion to my flesh. I know that God is my Father. I have nothing to prove to you. God has taken care of me. Just as he did these 40 days in the wilderness. I'm secure in my trust in God. There's nothing you can do to pull me off of that. And now we're back to where we left off. At the third temptation here. Verse 8. And again the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain. And showing him all the kingdoms of the world. And the glory of them. And saith unto him. All these things will I give thee. If thou wilt fall down and worship. So he's tempted him with the kingdoms of the world. And the glory of them. So here's the. You know, it says it took him to an exceedingly high place. A place, that in my mind, I'm thinking, it's got to be higher than this pinnacle. Because he's like, I've showed him this pinnacle, and that wasn't even high enough. So let's go to an exceedingly high place. And then he says, I'm going to show you the kingdom of the world, and then the glory of them. Now, see, that's, that's so interesting to me, right? Because when I think of the kingdoms and the glory of them, I get a picture of, I get a picture of princes and their glories. Robes, crowns, entourages, thrones, courts, palaces, gardens, vineyards, buildings, cities, uh, wealth, pleasure, happiness, uh, admiration, affection from the people. I get a picture of all that. But how could he actually physically show him all that? And I believe this is why he took Jesus to, to an exceedingly high place. He was to paint a picture for him. To show him. I, I'm going to tell you, he didn't physically, he may have showed him a, phys, a couple of physical things, but the glory of them? Listen, he's painting a picture. I, I remember Minister Hastings teaching on this. The devil likes to do mental movies. That's what he, listen, he was painting a picture for the glory of them. When I heard that, when I read that, I started seeing all those things. The glory of kingdoms. And what comes with these things, with these worldly kingdoms and what they offer. That's the glory of them. And it's just like his pattern, right? Because the, the first sin began with the eye. She saw the fruit and that it was good. Same pattern. Let me show you. Let me paint a picture. And the funny part about it is the picture is a lie. 
He's saying, I'll give you all these things if you fall down and worship me. And when you do that, I've got you because I have none of these things for you. All I have is destruction for you. Likes to show us the world and the glory of it. But then he he hides the sin and the sorrow and death that comes with it. Said, I'll give you all these things if you fall down and worship me. Now, see, when I saw him say that, when I heard him say that, I had to go back to the first thing because he first he wanted to get down to doubt that God is his father. And he said, but come to me as your father because I'll give you all these things if you fall down and worship me. I'll give you your desires. And again, it's all pretend. A picture that has nothing real in it. But that's the reward for Satan and all his lies. Destruction. For the wages of sin is death. That's why it's, it's so important to be content where you are. The bait of that snare will draw you in. Because the thing about people is, a lot of people, they begin to lose sight of what is. And then they start putting their eyes on what they, what they want it to be. And what, look, what it's not and what it will never be. Because that's what the, the enemy will show you what you want it to be, but what it will never be, just to get you off of what God has for you. Or off of what it needs to be. All of his baits are deceptions, shows, pictures, shadows, which he uses to present and persuade people just to, to deceive yourself. Now, let, let me encourage you again. Though the enemy is a skilled and a patient fowler, Psalm 91 says, surely he will deliver us from the snare of the fowler. So God will deliver you from the distractions and the tricks of this skilled hunter if you trust him. He's already made the way out of the foulest snare. Because he whom the sun makes free is free indeed. The sna- Listen, the snare has been destroyed at Calvary long ago. The enemy no longer has its power. Sin no longer has power to hold you. So that means being ensnared or being trapped, that's a place of our own making. Where our, our spiritual perception of God has now become governed by our flesh. And if we rely on self and self-sufficiency, you'll stay trapped. So we must not focus on the fowler if we're, if we're not to remain under his control. We have to focus on Christ because surely he will deliver us. And when I say deliver you, I want you to understand, I mean he'll keep you from ever even getting entangled. And if you do get entangled, he can show you the way of escape. 
And it's crucial because we're going to move into to, um, you know, how to avoid the snare of the fowler. But it's crucial to know this. First, as a, boy, a born-again believer, Christ is in us. And Satan cannot trap Christ. Second, we are in Christ. And Christ's power is far beyond the power just to present and persuade. It's far beyond the power of the enemy. I said it a moment ago, in Christ we are free indeed. But living this truth isn't always easy. Things happen to distract us. The flesh comes in with fear and doubt. But none of this changes the truth. That's why your trust has to be sure. You have to be secure in your trust in God. There's no snare that can hold the believer unless we allow it to. Unless we choose to remain in it. So, how do I avoid the snare of the fowler? Let's turn back to Psalm 91. And I'm, I'm going to read verse 1 again. It says, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him will I trust. Surely He shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler. So here it is. He that dwelleth in the secret place, that safe and secure place, the place of the Most High, uh, the all-sufficient one, the, the God who's, listen, the place where, listen, God, God is adequate for every situation. Like I said, the place where his glory resides and where he gets all the glory. He that dwells in that place, that secret place, shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. So if you're not dwelling in that secret place, you cannot abide. So dwelling or abiding or, or making your home in his presence is key. Remember that nearly, nearly 100% of the time, Satan, the fowler, and his snares are undetectable to us. So that means in and of ourselves, we'll never know when the snare is headed our way. In and of ourselves. That's why we must abide in Christ. Because surely, he will deliver us from the snare of the fowler. Full trust must be given to God. Your faith has to be in Christ alone. That means we have to allow him to order our steps by the Spirit. Examine our steps. And if they're not out of love and out of the fruit of the Spirit, then it may be a snare. Maybe a trap of the fowl. You have to relinquish control to the leading of the Spirit. And listen, Pastor said, said, there's nothing mystical about it, nothing spooky about that. To give control to the Spirit is not only to, to know God's Word, but again, to meditate on it. Day and night. That means to abide in Christ, He must be introduced and involved in everything in my life. Every situation. Every year, He has to be involved in the way I walk. The way I talk. He has to be introduced to my closet. You know, the things that I wear. He has to be introduced to my digital downloads. He has to be introduced to the music I listen to. The games that I play. Listen, he has to be introduced to my diet. He has to be introduced to my social media. He has to be introduced to the, the people that I work with. At my job. He has to be introduced to my, my emotions. The way I feel. 
He had, listen, he had, to, he had to keep him involved in the movies you watch. He had to keep him involved in the websites you go to. He has to be involved in every area of your life. And you should yield to his leading in every area of your life. For example, you know, sometimes we'll put on a movie and, you know, I'm sitting there watching it. And all of a sudden, there'll be a string of curse words. And I, me, personally, I get sometimes, you know, I can watch certain movies and I can watch those things. But when it's over, I, get, I start getting convicted. When it's, when it's overly overdone and they still, I'm like, that type of language, I just can't sit around and just, certain things you got to put away for you. Because you get to laugh and then start saying these things with them and you say, you, you start watching a movie with somebody and you, you talk to them about it, next thing you know you're repeating exactly what they said. Movies is a big one. Music is a big one. See, these things are created to get a response out of your feelings. That's why, listen, I gotta entrust my feelings to God. He needs to be introduced into every area of my life. I, I remember when we were young, so, so silly, but when you would, when we would go out and we would try to get, I guess the word is, uh, pumped up, if you were mad at somebody, if you were gonna fight, you put in your, your favorite rap, right? With all the cussing and what you wanted to do to them. Knowing you ain't got none of them guns, you ain't got none of that, but then you're trying to set your, you're trying to set your mind frame. Because it's, those things are created to, to, to get you to respond based on your feelings. So I, gotta have, I, have, I have to have God involved in those things. Everyone, I don't care how minuscule or insignificant that you think it is. Because like I said, the snare of the fowler can be small and insignificant. You may not even see it. See, when you abide like that, that's when you can say, like it says in Psalm 91, verse 7, listen, a thousand shall fall at, my, at thy side and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. See, you may not be able to see the snare of the follower, but you will see. God, you'll be able to see all around you like, I can't believe, what is going, what's, how did they get caught up in, but God is protecting you. When you're abiding, listen, you, though the snare of the follower may be undetectable to you, God sees it. You'll be able to see everybody else around you fall into it. But God says, don't worry about it. Because you are abiding in Christ. So, why does God want us to abide in Christ? And this is a simple question. I mean, a simple answer. Because abiding in Christ Christ will cause the believer to bring forth fruit that is pleasing to God. Abiding in Christ will allow you to develop and build on your relationship to your, to your father, with your father. Abiding in Christ will keep you dependent on God. It will keep you trusting in God. It will keep you obedient to God. Because you will see him as father. Because guess, guess, who, guess who God is to, to Christ? Father. Let's turn to John chapter 15. And I am not going to get to finish this tonight, but I believe you're going to get enough. Let's go to John chapter 15. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. It says, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. 
I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And man gathereth them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. So here's the process. Where your fruit bearing begins. It says the Father who is the, who is the husbandman or the gardener. He plants the vine. He cares for it. He's the one who prunes the branches. Now pruning again is it's cutting away. It's removing the unnecessary things that hinder your growth. Those things that can distract you. Those things that can put, be put in your way and, allow, and, and keep you from seeing or, or, or keep you from being where God needs you to be so that you're not caught up in the snare of the fowler. So why does God want to prune us though? And it said it because the, the gardener desires a more perfect fruit. The harvest. And then the son, he is the vine which the father has planted. He is the seed of the word from which all the branches receive their strength and their nourishment. He is the very core of the branches. And then the branches, they're every believer who dwells in Christ, who abides in Christ. The vine is the very support or core for which the branches get its strength, and then the fruit grows on the branches. So whatever is in the core, which is Christ, should flow to the branches. As long as the branch is connected to the vine, is abiding in Christ, you will see fruit. Fruit is produced. So why as a branch do you want to be pruned? What are the benefits? Because let me tell you, pruning hurts. It's not, a, it's not necessarily a, a delightful process all the time. So I had to look up naturally first. And of course, everything they said immediately applies spiritually. Because that's why God used this analogy. So the first thing it said was, you, you, you prune because it reduces the risk of failure from dead or weak branches. See, God removes those dead things from your life, those stumbling blocks from your life. He prunes those things, and you might think they belong there. Those things you, you think you might need or you might desire. God, who's the master gardener, who sees our tomorrow, who's, who's, who holds time and the seasons in his hands and makes everything beautiful in his seasons, may say, you know, that needs to be removed. That's a distraction. And when I remove this, it causes this branch to look more like the vine. Another thing it says it does is it provides clearance and reduces resistance against shade and wind. So listen, he's getting rid of all those things that cause you to resist this pruning. All of those attitudes, all of those, those fears and doubts, all the excuses, all the distractions that hinder you from seeing the light and walking in the spirit. Then it says, this is, you do this to manage the health of your tree. That means the constant pruning God does by his word keeps you healthy in your walk with him. In your relationship with him as father. It keeps you in a proper relationship as son and father. And then it also says it manages flower or fruit production. And, and, and that's the thing about the, 
the husbandman, you know, the gardener. God has an expectation. And so he must prune because he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. And then lastly, it just, it said, it improves the tree structure. And basically all that means is it keeps you upright. It keeps you righteous. He'll let you know what's right. In the heart, he'll keep you upright. Not just the outward appearance of it. He'll keep you upright. So if the branch is cut off from the vine, it loses its connection to life. Because Christ is life. And the very, listen, the, the branches received from the very core of the vine. So if you're cut off from the vine, you lose your connection to life. So I must abide in the vine, which is Christ. When I choose to be in Christ, God gives me a place of expectancy, which is fruitfulness, and any branch that bears no fruit, what does it say? He takes it away. So, to abide, I'm going to give us, a, I guess, a, a quick definition. And you can write this down if you want to. We've talked about abiding before. Or you can come back and listen to it again. But, to abide. It says, because I am in Christ Jesus, I am now to continue and remain in his love by faith. I'm going to say that again. To abide is, because I am in Christ Jesus, I am now to continue and remain in his love by faith. I'm not through. By doctrine, teaching, listen, going to church, learning, studying, to show thyself approved, to bring forth the approved fruit, what pleases God, to be his disciples. Listen, performing his will for his kingdom. All these things I'm saying, that's abiding. Take, listen, taking on Christ's characteristics. That's abiding. It's a need for the Lord. Like I said, it's incorporating Him into your daily life. Depending on Him. It's where you grow in righteousness and your relationship with God the Father deepens. Now the struggle with this pruning process comes when the believer battles with his flesh. But God, being a faithful gardener that he is, he has put a law in place that guarantees us the ability to abide in him. It's called the law of the spirit of life in Christ. Life in Christ is the pruning process by which we yield the fruit that's pleasing to God. It's where God removes the distractions and cares and and perceptions of this world. And the perception of the the old man that will hinder us to our fruitfulness. And this law operates out of love. And, and, you know, the funny people, many people say, you know, well, what can I do to to be under this law? And that's the issue right there. It's in the question. We get trapped in the snare of the enemy. That's the humanity part of it. What can I do? And he gets you to reason against the fact that this is not a law of deeds. It's a law of faith. Listen, you as a man alone, by yourself, you cannot keep the righteousness and holiness of, of God. 
Not as a man on your own. Working by the flesh, that only leads to, to sin and corruption and condemnation, self-condemnation. So we have to always remember, Pastor was saying, certain things you got to keep in remembrance. Certain things you got you to take into account. You got to remember that the flesh, it lusts against the spirit. And it's not talk, when the scripture says that in Galatians, it's not talking about the Holy Spirit, it's talking about your spirit, man. You gotta, you gotta take thought on these things. You gotta bring it to your remembrance. It's when you're led by the Spirit and the new man and not the old man, that's when you'll see fruit. And that time is getting away from me. But that's okay. If we're abiding in the vine, listen, our fruit is to look look like Christ. We have to be made over in His image. Not any image that's acceptable to, to, to anybody in this world or society. God will only accept His glory. That's why you have to dwell in the secret place where His glory resides, because He only accepts His glory. Abide in the vine. Abide in obedience to his word. I, I, you know, thinking of, I, I begin to think of, of Cain and Abel and how Cain, how Cain approached God his own way. Thinking you could do it on your own. Refusing to approach God like he says. Your works will never, your works alone will never be able to access God's grace. Grace is accessed by dwelling in that secret place of the Most High. Abiding in the vine, where my life is not mine to do with as I please. We have to remember, listen, I'm dead to sin. So I shall no longer live therein. Those are the things you have to bring to your remembrance on a constant basis. When when Christ died, I died with him. He, He destroyed sin's grip on us. No longer does sin have dominion. Those are the things that you have to bring to your members by abiding, by studying, by learning, by being discipled. If you can keep those things in the forefront of your mind, you can yield yourself to God as servant. And you know, I said that you know God is looking for a more perfect fruit. A lot of people, well, I'll never be perfect. Okay, but does that mean you've given up? Have you stopped abiding? It's time to get rid of the excuses. You can't get tired 
of the pruning process. If you're tired of the pruning process, you've got to ask yourself, am I trusting him fully? Again, because, listen, he's your source. He's your protection. He's your strength. But this is how the enemy tries to snare us. We've all heard or said these lines ourselves. If we start to doubt them before, things aren't going the way I thought they would. Money's tight. I lost my job. My spouse left. I'm sick. The car broke down. And then you start to say the same thing. What did I do wrong? Is God upset with me? Has God turned his back on me? And what in actuality you're saying is, I don't think I can trust God. When in actuality, God may just be pruning you for his glory. You see, you, you see then, just like he tried to do with Jesus. Surely if he's your father, he wouldn't allow you to go through this or that. Listen, if you're abiding in Christ, your hour of temptation will be to the glory of God. And now understand as well, some things are self-inflicted. Sometimes we do miss God. But the danger is we can't come up with a set pat answer to explain why things are going wrong. It's the perception that's wrong. You're looking at your circumstances or your situation with the wrong set of eyes. If the enemy can get us to look at God and his ways through the eyes of the flesh and the ways of the world, then the trap is set. You've got to ask yourself, how long until I, I give up control and stop trying to live self-sufficient? Only to, to condemn ourselves. When will we be transformed completely to the sons he has called us to be? So I'm out of time, but I have one more scripture. So I'm going to go ahead and finish this. Let's go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 32. You know, I never looked at this scripture this way, but, you know, God took me here. And this is about Jacob. Genesis chapter 32. And of course, as you know in this scripture, if you've read it, that Jacob, he wrestles with God in this scripture. And let me just give you a, you know, a quick background of everything that's happened so far in Jacob's life. He was the second born of twins, of Isaac and Rebekah. He came into this world and he was grasping his brother's heel and it almost seemed like he was trying to pull Esau back so he can come out and go ahead of him. And his parents named him Jacob, which means trickster or grabber, or heel. And this was really a, it was a foreshadowing of the type of person Jacob would be. Because he was a man that wanted desperately to, to be a winner by trickery, scheming, and, and grabbing at what he could get, that, you know, everything he could put his hands on. He spent his life uh, in and out of tough spots and quickly ended up in another. He was mama's favorite. He swindled his brother Esau out of his birthright. He tricked his dying father, Isaac, into giving him the family inheritance instead of Esau. And so at that point, he becomes a fugitive because his brother Esau vows that I'm going to kill you for taking my, my birthright. 
And then after 20 years, Jacob wants to go back home. Back to the brother who's threatened to kill him. Back to the father who he had cheated and lied to. And he's worried. Because his brother has come with the force of 400 men. In order to soothe the anger of his brother, Jacob organizes presents from his livestock to go ahead of him. Then he wakes up the whole camp and sends his wife and his children across the river. And if Esau had any thoughts of attacking as they crossed the river, then Jacob would be one step ahead of Esau again. Because again, Jacob was a schemer. He was a planner. You know, he was already set to outsmart his brother again. So let's start in verse chapter 30, 32, verse 24. And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint. And as he wrestled with him, as he, out of joint as he wrestled with him, I'm sorry. And as he said, let, let me go for the day breaketh, and he said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And he said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And Jacob said, thy name shall, and he said, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For a prince hast thou power with God and with man, and hast prevailed. And Jacob asked him and said, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. So, Taking it back to verse 24, Jacob is the only one left behind there. It's nighttime, and Jacob is assaulted by a stranger. And, you know, who is this stranger? To Jacob, who knows in his mind, the, the, the story just says he started wrestling. He may have thought it was a robber. He may have thought that it was his brother coming to get him. Then the man touches Jacob's hip and dislocates it. So, so Jacob, listen, Jacob realizes this man is not a robber. This man is not my brother. But I'm looking at the face of God. And here's the, here's the beauty of this whole thing, right? Now he's called Israel, which means God preserves or God protects. See, with the new name, there comes a new person, a new man. A new people has, has been formed and called forth. Uh, and the interesting thing is, what I saw was God, the great gardener, he came down to do some personal pruning. Why? Why would he do that to Jacob? Because he loved him. See, I told you that, that he operates out of love. He loved him. Jacob literally had to lose something when he got touched on his thigh. And though it may seem that he was weakened by it, he was stronger now because now he leans on God. See, and here's the thing. God has come down to interact with us too. You know, sometimes God has to wrestle with us during the pruning process when all he wants to do is deliver you from the snare of the fowler. He wants to be your shield. He wants to be your buckler. He wants to be your refuge and your fortress. He wants to be the one that you trust in. When will we learn that the key to spiritual power is not in our strength, but it's in our weakness. Because when we are weak, he is strong. See, see, his pruning allows, it, it allows him to work and mold your heart day by day. 
by the Spirit. See, because he's the only one that can change your heart from the heart of Jacob, you know, the trickster, the grabber, to the heart of Israel, the one that God protects. Only he can do that. And if you go on reading, which the, the beautiful part about, about this change and about what's, what's resulted in, in Jacob is that when, when you change for God, when you allow him to prune you and you change, other people change. Because if you read on, there was no, no killing from Esau. Esau was changed. Because his brother... See, when, when you abide in Christ, I don't care what's going on around you, because people are going to witness it. When you allow him to prune you and change you from that old man you used to be to get rid of all those things, even if you grew up with it and that's how you were your whole life, like they, you were saying in your, in that, uh, they were saying in that family life question, listen, allow God to change you, though. Because Jacob, from the womb you saw, he was a grabber. He was a trickster. And it carried throughout his life. But God changed him. Not through any works of his own. He fought against it. But it wasn't until he was weak that he began to lean on God. It wasn't until he realized, I have to put all my trust in God. Because I want you to understand something about Jacob. Listen, he's the son of Isaac who's, who's the son of Abraham. You know, the, the father of the faith. So he grew up knowing these things. That's what I'm, I want you to understand. The snare of the fowler, it's, it doesn't discriminate. He will do something that will follow you all the days of your life until you choose that. Listen, I have to, I have to, I have to let myself go. I have to take my hands off and realize that God makes things beautiful in His time, and trust in Him, and allow Him to change your heart. Allow Him to change you to the one He protects. And I am out of time, family. Let's stand to our feet. This has been a teaching message from Church of the Living Water in Austin. For more information about our ministry, please go to our website at livingwateraustin.net.